Welcome to the Refine Your Health podcast with Dr. Dion. I'm a primary care physician, and now I can happily add podcaster. Tune in to each episode to hear great information on improving health outcomes, disease prevention, and overall community health advocacy. Thanks for listening. Now let's jump into today's episode to improve your health. Hello, listeners. It is your host, Dr. Dion. Thanks again for checking out another episode of Refine Your Health. I am so excited about this episode because number one, I have a very special guest joining me. And number two, the episode will be focusing on a very important topic, which I feel isn't being discussed enough in the media. And that is your mental health in the midst of a pandemic. Now that brings me to introducing my special guest. She is a mental health expert, which will be perfect for this topic. Her name is Dr. Shonda Mayers Elder, and she is a native of Brandon, Mississippi, and a graduate of Jackson State University in Jackson, Mississippi. She received her doctorate of medicine from the University of Kansas School of Medicine in Kansas City, Kansas. She then went on to complete a residency in psychiatry at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, Texas and a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine. Currently, she's the medical director and psychiatrist at a community health agency where she leads an interdisciplinary team in providing medical and mental health services to homeless and indigent adults who are in psychiatric crisis. Hello, Dr. Mayers Elder. Thanks for joining us and definitely addressing an important topic of mental health. Thank you, Dr. Dion. It's great to be here. Yeah. So let's just jump right into it. So what is it to be considered to be mentally healthy? Oh, wow. That is actually very broad. Mm-hmm. And also it's, it's, it can be very unique for an individual. To be mentally healthy, you want to consider every aspect of your life. You want to consider your personal emotional health. You want to consider the the emotional uh, and health and stability of the people around you, mainly your family, loved ones. And you also want to consider your um, emotional and mental health or well-being whenever you go to whatever you do on a daily basis, whether it's at home, being a domestic engineer, or whether it's out of the home. It it just encompasses every aspect of your life, whether or not you are able to manage the stressors that come with being human um, and encountering other humans. And being able to respond appropriately while also maintaining your own sense of wellness and um, self-worth at the same time. So every aspect, every encounter that you you are doing in a day-to-day that starts with yourself, with the people around you, and with the people that you work with. Okay. And so right now the world is experiencing a pandemic, um, which has been having an impact similar to the 1918 flu pandemic. And also you add the secondary effects of that on the economy where you resulted in individuals losing their jobs. I think over the summer, 30 million people have applied for unemployment. And you're looking at them also dealing with the risk of eviction at the end of the year, especially with the eviction moratorium ending at the end of the year after the economic plan that went into effect over the summer to kind of provide some relief for those individuals. And then you add into the middle of all of that, the protests that are going on um, nationwide regarding racial inequality. All that being said, is it okay not to be okay during times like these? 
it's it's okay not to be okay. It's always okay not to be okay, but it's it's okay to say you're not okay because we're not okay. The world is not okay. So we are people of the world and we we the world does influence us. We we are touched by everything that could potentially be touched by everything that happens around us, what we hear about, what we know about. It influences us, even though we may feel as if we have a still trapped mind. We're not going to let anything permeate our, our, our well-being or our sanity or what have you. But trauma does happen. This is, this is a lot going on. I would think that someone is not okay if they were okay <laughs> with everything that's going on. Good point. There there are so many things. Um, you know, I, I think I was mentioning to someone, I don't know who it was recently, that end of uh, 2019, where it's like, oh, it's 2020, you're creating your vision board, we're going to have clear vision. Right. Nobody saw this coming. <laughs> 2020. Not at all. I don't want to see anything any more clear <laughs> than it has been presented in 2020. Exactly. I think we've all had enough. But sometimes things sometimes need to happen in a uh, uh, dramatic or abrupt way for the world to pay attention and quite possibly make some changes about how we've been doing things in the past. Maybe the world is being well the world is being forced to change some things that it's normally doing so dealing with first covid and then the racial um tensions and 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 that's nothing new but you know it's like right at the forefront it's really loud right now it's really right. being heard right now and then the and then the presidential election there's just so much stuff that's all interconnected that everyone's dealing with. And it's not just adults. The kids are dealing with this too. Kids are, you know, exposed to the media, exposed um, to television, even exposed during times that you, that you don't expect them to be exposed. Like on random internet searches, these things pop up, news flashes from this report to that report. COVID is reported every day, all day long. So, Going back to your, your question, it, it's it's okay to be not okay. I think everybody is not okay when when we are having to be forced to change the way that we used to go about day-to-day living. And, and for a lot of folks, it's hard to adjust mm-hmm. to that change. Exactly, because you're so used to going and doing what you used to do. And now that has been impacted with this coronavirus. Mm -hmm. I like that you said that it's okay to say that you're not okay. A lot of times people deal with this in silence when you're not feeling yourself. And knowing that it's okay not to be okay during this time, everyone's level of uneasiness during this time is different, right? And so knowing that, when does it become or risk becoming, I should say, a behavioral or mental health disorder when those levels may be different for different people. Yeah, exactly. Of course, you're definitely right. There, There's different levels of okayness that people have. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so there's different levels of okayness. So some people may feel okay, like, uh, like Chicken Little, the, 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 the sky's falling, I'm going to go and take cover right now. And they may take cover for a day and then it'll and they realize, okay, it's, it's sky's not falling. Um, it's just some raindrops. You know, let's go back out there and do our chicken little stuff. 
then some people may like, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. And somebody said that the sky is going to fall. And then they go take cover and they forget about everything else that is important to them. The, the, the things that they value, they disregard their, their families, they dis- disregard their personal health, they disregard their work, they may stop going to work. And very well, the, the sky may be falling, you know, metaphorically speaking, maybe raining outside or whatever, or they may they may have been told or they think the sky is falling. So it, there may not be any tangible evidence of the sky is falling. And once that impacts their day-to-day functioning where they're, they become dysfunctional, that's when it's like red flags. Okay, it's okay to not be okay, but this is really not okay. This is not okay to the point where we may need some external interventions, be it uh, family, loved ones, interventions and support, be it going to your place of worship, getting some counseling and support there, or actually going beyond there to some pers- some specialized care with seeking out medical professionals or mental health professionals, or even it can get to the point where Chicken Little is inside and he's, you know, underneath the bed, refusing to get out, refusing to eat because it's gotten to that point. It may need to be a little bit the most severe form getting hospitalized for that particular crisis uh, or that level of not okayness. For this episode, I was just doing some research and I found that the Kaiser Family Foundation website noted prior to COVID-19 pandemic, nearly one in five U.S. adults, that's basically 47 million people, reported a mental illness in the past year. And like over 11 million had a serious mental illness within that same time frame mm-hmm. and that basically impacting their day to day. And they did a poll as well, late April, 2020, um, looking at the U S after the onset of the pandemic. And they said about 56% reported some type of worry or stress related to the coronavirus outbreak as impacting their lives and having ne- negative effects on their mental health. What are some of those effects that people may have in addition to the worry and stress? that can impact their mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so when you mentioned the, the, the giving the statistics about the one in five Americans are impacted by mental illness, mental illness is a very common condition, high blood pressure, diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think about mental illness, a lot of people tend to think straight to like schizophrenia, where you're having psychotic symptoms, or some people, layman's term will be nervous breakdown, but that's, it, it could mean a lot of things. It could mean a major depressive disorder. It could mean out of control anxiety. It could even mean a, a mood disorder like bipolar disorder, where you can have varying degrees of depression or even excessive uh, energy types of disorder that uh, called mania or hypomania. But since COVID, the symptoms of mental illness that a lot of folks, well, that are most prevalent um, nowadays, of course, you mentioned anxiety. People are worrying. Anxiety can be a symptom of a mental illness, um, Mm -hmm. but it's also a normal emotion. Anxiety is a normal emotion. As we spoke about earlier, it only becomes a disorder when it significantly impacts your daily functioning. 
So and, and anxiety can lead to depression. You worry, worry, worry. And then you start thinking, having automatic thoughts about what you're worried about. And it could get, it could bring you down. It could make you sad. And to the point where you don't want to, you just start crying a lot. You, your energy gets low. You, you worry, you may not eat as much as you used to, or you may eat too much. You may lose weight or gain weight. You may not be able to sleep or you may sleep too much. You may start to isolate yourself. And those are uh, some symptoms of depression. And the anxiety, there's different kinds of anxiety. Simple, you know, no, that normal emotion of anxiety. Like mm-hmm. I said, it's normal to be anxious. Before, when we were in medical school, before tests, I'm pretty sure right. we all were anxious. Uh, studying for the test, worried, you know, are we going to pass it? Are we going to do well on it? But then that uh, uh, there's a level of anxiety that's healthy for you that actually Mm -hmm. that you perform most productive at. However, it gets to a uh, a tipping point where it becomes unproductive. And like I said, is start negatively affecting your day to day uh, living, you're not able to function at the level that you would like to. So that's when it becomes an anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, so definitely those two um, mood symptoms, um, depression and also mm-hmm. anxiety, are showing its, its face um, since the pandemic started. But also um, on the flip side, anger, uh, mm-hmm. which is it can be a component of depression. It can be a component of anxiety or an expression of depression or anxiety, I should say, not a component. And there is an uptick in domestic violence or interpersonal uh, violence as a result. There's an uptick in substance use disorders or substance use period because a lot of times people misuse or use substances as a way to treat those other symptoms, anxiety, mm-hmm. depression. And so if you're if you're having persistent symptoms like that and you opt to choose that that way of coping with them and which is not a um, constructive way to cope with with those symptoms or feelings could lead to substance misuse, substance abuse, and and also substance dependence. And when people take or use uh, mind-altering substances, it could lead to violence uh, or irritability, more Mm -hmm. mood symptoms. So it's kind of like a vicious cycle at times. But those are some of the um, mental health symptoms and disorders, characteristics that that we're seeing a lot since Mm -hmm. COVID and and increasing too. And so um, you mentioned uptick in depression, anxiety, substance abuse, domestic violence, and that's including uh, child abuse as well um, within that? Yes. Exactly. Because okay. um, if, if you think about it, at the in March, you know, everything got shut down. My kids, we went on spring break and we never went back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then these parents who had jobs, may not have jobs anymore or mm-hmm. may have to or had to be forced to work from home due to the stay-at-home order, work order, you're trying to work in two different careers at the same time, which mm-hmm. is nearly impossible. You're trying to be a school teacher and you're trying to be whatever uh, profession or job that you have if you were still working. And, and, and still, even if people are not working, you're still trying to do a profession that you are not adequately training in, in addition to being a parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely the patience of uh, parents uh, had shortened. You know, I don't think parents have as much patience 
since their children have been at home as they would have had if they were still going to work and the kids were still going to school and they they had that that time apart because everybody's inside the house you're with right. your spouse your your loved one whoever you live your 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 circle and there's no downtime <laughs> right so and, there's no time to separate to have yes. your downtime to just focus on you and then it's mm-hmm. just constant mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm and sometimes it's because there's a lot of different situations where that is a norm for most people. However, you have to you have to be intentional about making that time for yourself, however short, long, whatever it is, that will overall make sure that you are mentally healthy enough to continue to interact with the people around you, especially your loved ones. Okay. You said we're all inundated with this information in the media, wherever you look. Have you noticed um, an uptick of agoraphobia? And could you explain what that is to my listeners? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So agoraphobia is uh, basically the fear of of crowds or, or leaving your home. You have this intense fear or intense anxiety that could be hallmarked by like panic attacks or feeling like you're about to just feeling like you're about to die like this in, or having this intense fear or something where it it uh, inhibits you from leaving your safe place. So unfortunately, I have not seen that because I work outside the home. <laughs> so those people who are agoraphobic, they're not leaving their homes to see <laughs> me and they're not going out. But I, I, I would imagine that um, I, and I've heard from people who have not left their homes since March. Mm-hmm. They have not gone anywhere. They've ordered wow. their foods, delivered because they they are fearful of the the COVID nineteen virus or in contracting it. So they may not have agoraphobia, but they have a significant fear of this particular virus and the pandemic. So they have opted to stay at home. And a lot of times they're uh, those people that I'm speaking of, they're okay mm-hmm. with that, but not the mm-hmm. agoraphobic. So, but they've just made a conscious decision not to leave. But um, yeah, honestly, I, I would not see agoraphobics because they tend to not leave their homes. Okay. They would be okay with being at home. <laughs> they would okay. that was that would be their safe place. Right, right. Okay. So y- you went through a list of these different diagnoses such as depression, anxiety, agoraphobia, substance abuse, domestic violence. The individuals that are these individuals, the upticks, are they newly diagnosed or are these exacerbations of people who have been previously diagnosed with a behavioral mental health disorder? It's a combination. Okay. However, there are a, a significant number of new cases of folks who are struggling with mental illness because of the pandemic. People who have previously been diagnosed with a mental illness, be it depression or anxiety or even a, a psychotic um, disorder like schizophrenia or so forth, or bi- and also bipolar disorder, they are... they. It tend to, they may have a, a level of fragility that other folks may not, ha- who have never been diagnosed with a mental illness, may have. So they may they are more prone to a recurrence or an exacerbation of symptoms. Of course, like everyone else in the world, most people have not experienced a pandemic like this, this magnitude before. Correct. And 
2020 has been a life-changing year all over the world, not just specific to the United States and all its other issues that are going on here, but just the uncertainty of the next step. uh, That has led to a lot of anxiety symptoms Mm -hmm. or anxiety diagnoses. Also, the folks who have lost jobs and can't can't support their families, can't support themselves, who have become homeless, that has led to a lot of mental health crisis and newly diagnosed mental health disorders. And on top of that, uh, another layer for you, Dr. Dion, large areas, I live in the greater Houston area, and mm-hmm. The, the homeless, we have a very large homeless population and the resources for the homeless have like almost just dried up or stopped because of the mitigation efforts of controlling the spread of uh, Mm -hmm. COVID-19. There's a decrease in the number of people that are allowed to go to shelters because you think, well, if you're homeless, go to a shelter. However, they've significantly, you know, decreased the number of people that are allowed in the shelters and also other transitional type housing. Mm-hmm. And typically, you know, pre-COVID, you know, and this is probably common uh, amongst other larger cities with a, a significant homeless population. Mm-hmm. Um, people, you know, th- know how the resources work and they go, come, they know always know, well, if I don't, if I don't stay at this shelter, I can go to this other one or this, but people are staying because they know there's nothing else. Right. So there's no turnover of people that can access these resources. And there's more homeless folks because of job loss, loss of home. There's more people entering the, the pool of people who need these services to a already decreased capacity to some places. And it's just a vicious cycle. So what do you do? You, you've, we've never been here before. Right. And I think that a lot of the larger cities are just doing the best they can. And mm-hmm. we do have crisis services and so forth. However, that's just a Band-Aid, at, in my opinion, at this time. There's no permanent solutions. It's great that they're halting all of the evictions to a certain uh, until a certain time. However, that that took effect after probably thousands of people who had uh, who had already been evicted and families and so forth. So mm-hmm. this is adding on a layer on top of a layer. It's just a vicious cycle. And given that we, you know, the world has no answers right now, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the the coronavirus, it's it, it's disrespectful. <laughs> That, and that's put anyone. and that's putting it mildly, <laughs> very mildly. And I know, and I didn't even think about that from your standpoint mm-hmm. about the homeless. Mm-hmm. Just you get so like laser focused on what's going on around you and what's put in front of you all of the time. But I know that you work with the, the homeless population, and from my standpoint, it's like I didn't even think about it as far as limitations of housing for them because you have to do the social distancing and things of that mm-hmm. nature. So I was like, wow. So you brought something to light that I hadn't even thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then where are these people going to go and what are the resources uh, for them? Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it, yeah. And, and uh, honestly, I, the majority of the, I work with a significant population of homeless and also mm-hmm. people aren't homeless, mm-hmm. but I learn from my patients. I learn about a lot of things that maybe a lot of um, folks in my 
position would not know had they not been working directly with this particular population and how hard it is. And it's not just easy as telling them, here's your homeless shelter resources. Everything's closed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Where am I going to go? Right, exactly. (laughs) What can I do? Like, thanks a lot. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's, you really have to be empathetic to, Mm -hmm. um, person who who have no options. I mean, there comes a point when someone, they have no options. Mm-hmm. And you have to, I, I'm honest with folks, patients, and admit, I understand. I know there's nothing. We, we don't have an answer. There's no options. Mm-hmm. I understand. And, I, and oftentimes, the persons that we serve, they really respect that honesty. They don't want to hear fluff a lot mm-hmm. of times. It's, you know, it is what it is bad. Right, right. <laughs> and they need to bad. hear that. Yeah, <laughs> and they need to hear that. They know and, fluff. Yeah, yeah, and, and that you're not out of your mind. This is not good right now. It's mm-hmm. everybody's not good. Like mm-hmm. you said, it's not. It's okay to be not okay. Right. You have right. a reason to be not okay. And so you mentioned the the homeless population and individuals that have recently lost their job. Have you noticed people of certain demographics or background that have been at risk um, during this pandemic with newly diagnosed behavioral or mental health disorder um, or exacerbations um, during this time if they've had a previous diagnosis, such as like frontline workers in addition to the homeless, furlough workers, people with food insecurities, uh, essential workers? Like, have you noticed, I know everybody's at risk for having mental health um, issues, but have you noticed anything in particular towards a certain demographic during this time? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I do know that a lot of essential workers are, uh, there's a lot of minority essential workers. Mm-hmm. And also there are that they're still going to work. They're still, they still have their job. That's great. However, just like, like us, every day we, we're faced with, I'm going to work. I could get coronavirus. I'm going to work because I'm essential because this is what I've I've signed up to do. Um, I I I can't work from home, but some people can. Some people, right. does, but you the the folks that are out there um, on the front lines and so forth. You, you you're always thinking about what if I bring this home? Right. What what if I contract this virus? What what will um happen to me and my loved ones? I've I've heard of people getting their wills together, getting their you know if they hadn't already, reiterating their advance directives to their loved ones and other people, just having things right where you can find them because it's that it's a risk. It's a it's a valid um fear and risk. And also for for those who may not be essential workers, but for those who have never been in a situation where they have to ask for food or where they have to ask or, or receive subsidies or what have you. And oftentimes I've, I've noticed those first timers, as you mentioned, the first time diagnoses and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's a struggle for them because you, it's it's foreign, the, the, the feeling, the dependency on others, the, um, the lack of not knowing that your next step and you're listening to people trying to assist you and help you. But it's like, I don't have a home anymore. I don't have a job. I have $2 to my name. Mm -hmm. They may have been a chef in a restaurant 
But, you know, as you know, that that industry has basically dwindled because it's it's um, because of the pandemic and how the viruses can be easily spread in indoor locations. And they're being forced to come up. These restaurant owners are being forced to come up with something more creative to be able to generate income and so forth uh, and keep their doors open. But Mm. they significantly reduced their staff. And if you were a chef, maybe one of of five, there may be two now. So there's three chefs out, chefs out. So, and then you have the, the restaurant staff that Mm -hmm. waiters and waitresses Mm -hmm. and and yeah, the hosts and hostess and Mm -hmm. all of those people being out of work and yeah, having to be impacted that way. So yeah. So the typically in, you know, pre-COVID, it's like if you lost your job, it's like, well, I'll just go get another job in an entertainment restaurant industry. But that's kind of on hiatus right now. It's, for it's everyone. Living. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. For everyone. And then I think about also like restaurants, transit workers, people working in factories. We had mm-hmm. these major outbreaks mm-hmm. in like meatpacking mm-hmm. industry. And yeah. yeah. So I just wanted to see if there had like you had noticed a pattern, like you said, of these individuals. But like you said, now it's foreign to some people yeah. being having to ask for help during this mm-hmm. time. And that mm-hmm. provides a stress and a worry. Mm-hmm. So. So that's that's good to know. And for people to look for those, you know, signs and symptoms of issues that may be affecting their mental health from that standpoint that they may not be aware of. So are there certain risk factors for behavioral or mental health disorders? Yes, there is. Um, Certain risk factors could include a family predisposition to mental illness. It could be drugs and alcohol use. It could be folks who have chronic medical problems because that's number one. Mm-hmm. Coronavirus, you, the folks that are most at risk are folks who have chronic medical issues. So you are it's significantly more hypervigilant about or more have more anxiety about, oh my gosh, if it, I'm, I'm at higher risk of dying um, because I have these chronic medical problems. So of course you, you could, that kind of leads to a higher um, risk of having a, um, a mental illness such as depression, anxiety, um, as a result of trying to maintain your overall medical, physical health, which are chronic um, medical problems, in addition to being hyper aware that you could possibly die if you contract this virus. And yeah, th- those would probably be some of the, the folks that are a little bit more at risk of mm-hmm. um, of having mental illness. Also, another um, group of folks, people who are very social people, and I've I've seen this. Mm-hmm. People who are on the go, visiting. That's their their life force. They need to connect with people. The Zoom stuff is not working. FaceTime is really not working. I have to be in my home. And they, their energy, they're extroverted, I guess. And I have seen some personal acquaintances, they declined because they cannot get out Mm -hmm. and they are, they have been forced. They, they have to stay. They feel, I mean, it probably feels like jail to them, incarceration. They Mm -hmm. have to stay home for the safety of their loved ones and their the household. Um, they can't visit the, their parents or whatever because they don't want to transmit if, if at any risk. 
So those I've noticed that those people, mm-hmm. they are really struggling. Hmm. The, the the extroverted, the people, the social people who have to be engaged and out and be around folks, they are really struggling. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I mean, mm-hmm. if you're like a social butterfly used to going out, mm-hmm. meeting friends and having a lot of friends, and that's, that's who you are. It's your essence of being around people. Yeah. Wow. And during those times, I would encourage people to get creative and with your socialization and uh, saw a podcast or heard something kind of like renaming or reframing. Don't Mm -hmm. say social distancing, say physical distancing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you could still kind of, you know, be physically distanced from someone in appropriate distance and still socialize with that particular person to meet that particular need for their, that particular person's mental health or being mentally healthy. Okay. So if someone has never been diagnosed with a mental health uh, disorder, what are some of the signs and symptoms that they should seek medical attention? So anytime someone, anytime um, someone has a change, if they notice a change in themselves, it could be a change in your energy level. And that could be as simple as I'm not getting enough sunlight or I'm not eating enough vegetables or my diet is not balanced enough. Or it could be something a little bit more serious on the medical side. It could be, you know, a medical underlying medical issue that could be easily treatable with uh, medication. Or if someone, uh, if all of that's ruled out, any medical problems or nutritional imbalances or anything like that, or deficits, um, if all of that's ruled out, meaning that there's no deficit or problems found in those areas, that's when you want to kind of look like, you know, let's screen for a possible behavioral health component, such as depression, anxiety, or anything like that. So there are different screening tools that we use to determine if someone meets criteria for a, a, a mental disorder. And that it could be as simple as um, being going to your primary care and having a simple screening with your primary care physician or provider. It could be even more specific or specialized, going to a mental health provider, physician or provider, and um, getting a uh, an evaluation, a psychiatric evaluation by a, a psychiatrist or a mental health provider. And yeah, so that's that's just the first step, recognizing when something, uh, if if you can recognize if something is changed in your normal day to day level of functioning. Oftentimes, people who are, are uh, suffering from a mental um, disorder or maybe some mental health, mental unwellness, the people around them notices it first um, before they do. So mm-hmm. it's important to stay kind of vigilant a, a, about the, with the folks around you too. That's, you know, that's why it takes a village. You want to be able to say, oh, wait, she's not dressing right today. She's usually dressed to the nines. What, what's, right, right. what's going on? That's different. And um, she's, she's, uh, he's not shaving or he's not taking a bath. Those things. I mean, you could, you know, it could start with just neglecting what you used to do that, mm-hmm. that what you used to pay attention to those things that are important to you. Typically grooming hygiene are important to folks. Now, when somebody is struggling with something that they may not have fully, um, 
or they may not fully recognize that they are in the midst of a crisis uh, or going towards a crisis. They, there may be some telltale signs like, well, wow, she, she's, she's not combing her hair. She's not shaving her legs. She's not um, putting no makeup anymore that she's, you know, she kind of, she's not ironing her clothes or he's not shaving. You know, he's just, just getting up, rolling out of bed. He's late for work all the time, or he's sleeping all the time. He goes to work. That's that mask. People can be functional just so, but they're not really that functional. They go to work on time. They may not be very productive at work. That's another, it affects that area. Productivity at work could drop off. You may keep to yourself a lot more. If it's at home, you may neglect your your chores and the dishes, whatever, clothes, laundry, the things that you normally do. So you may not go out or call your friends. You may, if during pandemic, you may not call people as much as you used to. So yeah, those are some, um, some, some signs like, hey, we need to kind of check on check on your girl some or <laughs> check right. on your boy. Right, right. So have you noticed um, also, because I was just trying to think about the risk and then some symptoms, signs and symptoms as well, like um, people that are caregivers uh, for mm. individuals, have you noticed anything for like in-home, like caregivers of, of a family member? What have you noticed with that? Yeah, so caregivers, they're, they're a special group of people mm-hmm. um, because they give, 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 give. And oftentimes they, they neglect themselves because their primary goal uh, is to make sure this person is okay, that they're providing all this care and attention to. That could be a young child. Can't forget about that's the That's the normal caregivers, mm-hmm. young children, babies, infants, whatever, mm-hmm. um, toddlers. It could be uh, an, an adult child caring for their, their elderly parent. And um, that's an added layer, especially and if you also have a minor child or a young child that you're taking care of at a the teenager. same time. A teenager. So, you, you know, this multi layers. Um, and then, yes, they are typically at risk of having uh, a mental illness or symptoms or depression, anxiety, even pre-COVID. But now... Another layer, you you may find some respite because, you know, you can send the before COVID, you can send the kids to daycare, to school, playgroup. Let me have a break over here. Go to Papa's, Mama's house mm-hmm. or um, the other ones. Or and you, then you're caring for your elderly um, parent and you may send your parent to day uh, daycare, the um, elder adult daycare mm-hmm. and where they're engaged with other seniors or whatever. And you have your a break, but all of that is you don't have that anymore because there's no more playgroups, maybe no more daycare. You don't feel comfortable going to daycare. Daycare may be shut down for but for only essential workers, kids. Then there's no more elder care because, of course, COVID hotspots are in um, those types of environments, those um, senior long. citizens' homes, long-term um, care homes. Correct. Um, and and if they have a you you don't want people coming in and out of your home like caregivers, uh, respite care, because you don't know where they've been. So they're introducing another layer of a risk to that elderly parent. So you opt to like, nope, I'm just going to stay home. So you are like the primary care person to one or more folks at a time 
for two different lifespans, <laughs> the elderly and the very young, quite possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we we forget about that subset of people who are struggling right now. And, you know, it's it's very important for if that person has a life partner, a spouse or what have you, that they allow them that time to get away mm-hmm. um, to to take care of their own mental wellness because they're on it 24-7. But just think about the ones who don't have that, that, that they're it. And if they have to work from home too <laughs> at the same time as right. teaching a kid their school it's like, work. It's like being on call 24-7. 24-7. It never stops. And Pre-COVID, you would tell people, like, can you can I come over? Can you come over and watch so and so or the kids or whatever? But you're, you're kind of extra cautious about that now, right? Because you don't expose them to potentially getting COVID. So they're they're having a struggle, an internal struggle. Is do I try to take care of my own mental health or focus only on the physical health of the people that I'm caring for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I would, you know, honestly, I would think about the whole um, idea, like when you're on a plane, if there's a loss of cabin pressure, you got to put your oxygen mask on yourself before you try to help somebody else. Because if you're, if, if you're taken out, who's going to watch those other people? Right. That How can you help somebody else if you're not? Yeah. If you can't help your, you know, mm-hmm. you can help yourself first in order to be able to help others. So, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned too, like people may ha- recognize, may have those signs and symptoms, but let's say they're in crisis. Like mm-hmm. you, you see a lot of that. That's what you kind of yeah. see on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So what are the things or, you know, resources for people that may be experiencing crisis symptoms? What are, what are those and what do they look like and what should yeah. they do? Yeah, crisis symptoms, you know, hopefully the, the best case scenario is that a person realizes that for themselves that they are in crisis and they could call either the crisis, the local crisis hotline, uh, whatever it is, um, you know, locally known to your area you can call the, I think it's 211. That's the, the local information area, the number of two in, in every area. And you just ask for, let them know what's going on. You, I'm, I'm in, I'm in crisis. I feel XYZ, I'm mental health. I need some, you know, mental health crisis services. If there is a suicide hotline number, there's a national suicide hotline number that you can call if, if that is your major um, symptom or sign symptom that you're having at the time. I know in the Greater Houston area we have or we have a crisis hotline where it's it's manned 24 seven by licensed mental health professionals, and it could you know it could be that someone just needs to talk to someone, not their family, no one biased, no just to get some professional direction. You may think that you're you you may have a significant or serious mental crisis going on, but quite possibly after you talk to these mental health uh, licensed mental health professionals, you feel better. It's like, "Oh, okay. It's okay to maybe not okay right now." <laughs> it's just right, a normal right. feeling. Mm-hmm. You're okay because it's not okay right now, but this is what you do if it gets worse, they may give the, you that advice or they may offer, well, if you really don't feel okay right now, I can send somebody to you. Just stay on the line with me. I'll 
dispatch them to you so they can come and check on you base to base. So um, definitely accessing some of the, those emergency, you know, crisis services in your area. 211 is always a, a good number to remember and just ask for it. just mental health crisis. Just let them know what's going on gotcha. or the national suicide hotline. And I think there's there's even a national, I want to, there may be a text hotline, mm-hmm. especially th- that reaches out to the younger folks, uh, like teenagers who prefer text and things like that. So, of course, immediate crisis as well. 911 is a, is always definitely always 911 with the option. But um I will be putting in the show notes for the listeners the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number as well as the the National Domestic Violence Hotline number and they have one for National Child Abuse Hotline as well. So, and I'll also make reference of the 211. I wasn't familiar with that one, so that's great to know about. And I'll make sure I put those in the show notes for references for people. So, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Like you said, we've never experienced anything like this before. What are, and I think you've mentioned this before, I've talked to you about long-term effects of major issues like this, like a pandemic, or you referenced 9-11, um, long-term effects of going through something that is like traumatic, like the pandemic. What are some of those long-term effects that people may have on their mental health? Yeah, so when we're talking about something that totally turns your life upside down, significant impact, negative typically, mm-hmm. negative impact on your life, we're we're, we're we want to look and look at like acute stress, very stressful, right? Mm-hmm then the stress is not uh, relenting, it's ongoing. And you develop secondary symptoms to distress, like persistent anxiety, depression, an increased startle reflex. You, you scare easily. You, you're, you have this physiological response to quite possibly hearing the numbers going up every day on CNN or MSNBC of the coronavirus cases. So, you know, and you start having this, you know, your heart racing, you're really scared, you're sweat, you, you may not be able to kind of have sh- shortness of breath and breathing a little bit more fast. You're having these acute stress reactions. However, it's been, it's been going on for a while that that major stressor of knowing that we are in this pandemic and then, you know, it eases off, but then you're reminded every time you hear you, you have this reaction. So mm-hmm. you're talking about uh, primary trauma, mm-hmm. right? And then we're talking about post-traumatic stress. Okay. So that's, um, that's one of the, the, the major um, long-term um, consequences of uh, folks having a significant stress and uh, continued um, residual symptoms related to this pandemic. And then just hearing about it, even if you don't know anybody that has been affected by COVID-19, or if you haven't been affected, or even... Um, children that are listening to the news all the time and hearing about death and, and people in the ICUs and no more hospital beds and all this stuff that's going on and people are protesting and 
kids can develop a trauma, a PTSD related to just from just listening to this all the time. I mean, if it's blaring on the TV nonstop every time you look around, it's popping up on your your timelines all the time and you're reading it, you're, you're getting traumatized over and over and over again. And you can develop a, a series uh, or a um, constellation of symptoms in response to hearing about that mm-hmm. or even seeing anything about it or even thinking about it sometimes because and so you're you're looking at quite possibly a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder now there are you know folks who unfortunately have been affected by covid been diagnosed and um, have recovered from the the acute illness of it they may experience an increase in anxiety because they're like Am I going to get it again? What do I do? How did I get it the first time? And I mean, it's, you know, all these things that may be going through through their minds and they're just super scared. Like I'm so scared. I've had, I've known someone that says, I'm just so scared. I will get it again because it was awful. It Mm -hmm. was awful. And like I said, COVID is disrespectful and people are developing an anxiety about the possibility of what if I get it again? Mm-hmm. And they may develop, uh, as you said, Dr. Dion, a type of agoraphobia. Well, I'm not going anywhere. I'm, st- I'm just too scared to go anywhere before fear that I may get it again. Right. And then you have that other group the, of folks, the lone haulers, who's still having these symptoms of, that they say, mental fogginess, just having difficulty concentrating, feeling depressed and down, lethargic, mm-hmm. uh, and and just not being up to part. Not they're like a lot of people. I just want to feel like I did before, mm-hmm. you know. And so people are dealing with that or thinking, well, am I ever going to feel normal again? What if I never feel normal again? So that that um, possibility of developing the depressive issues related to that uh, uncertainty and that quite possible feeling of hopelessness. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of different layers in here. Uh, and everybody is not the same. You know, people can watch the news and, and, and be able to have enough protectiveness to like, okay, it's not affecting me. I'm just, just, this is just news. I know it's there, but I'm not going to let it bother me. I'm not going to let it stick with me that it, it impacts my day to day in my every waking hour, or they may have had COVID and they past the acute phase and recover. And it's like, okay, I'm recovered. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to make sure I continue to distance, physical distance and take care of myself and do what I need to do for me and my family and not have that intense fear of re uh, contracting the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, or you may have some people who are long haulers, they're dealing with this, uh, but they notice that it is, they're having a lot of physical symptoms and quite possibly some mental fogginess and so forth, but they don't progress to uh, a clinical depression or anything. So there are, this, there's so many variations of what folks can experience and and how this pandemic and and everything that's happening can affect them. And it's it just, you know, depends on the person, uh, depends on their protective factors. And sometimes you, you can't totally depend on those. It, sometimes it's just, you just can't explain some things. 
Okay. And so basically, from your standpoint, there definitely are some long term effects and it could be most I think the most prominent is the post traumatic stress disorder is kind of what Mm -hmm. you've been pointing out. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in the middle of a pandemic, you got this uptick of all these different behavioral and mental health disorders. How are psychiatrists and therapists like yourself able to manage these patients in a pandemic? What are the services? How are you able to provide services for these patients? Well, um, it just hasn't stopped, you know, mm-hmm. right, right. We just, you know, we, we just keep, keep trucking, keep moving and doing the best we can and providing the best, um, level of care that we can to address a person's, um, symptoms and conditions and what they're going through, uh, individually. There's no one way to address every single person that has XYZ diagnosis. Everyone's unique and uh, one person's diagnosis uh, may not, it's not like somebody else's diagnosis. They may be on the same medication. However, they're made differently, different DNA. They may respond differently to certain Mm -hmm. things and no one's ever walked in someone else's shoes. Every single person comes with everything that they've ever experienced in their lives that impacts, that could potentially impact how they deal with something at that given time. So you have to, you know, as in the mental health field, we take that all into consideration. Mm-hmm. We take the biological factors, we take the psychological factors, and we we also take the spiritual factors uh, and the social factors that play all interconnect that have led that person to experience whatever they're experiencing as they are at that particular moment. And we utilize the positive factors in all of that to best help um, a person um, through their crisis. Gotcha. And so you have to be innovative during a time like this as far as how you can provide those services to because that come into the office that one on one. So what are you guys doing from that standpoint? How are you managing? Is it the telephone telehealth? Like how are you managing those individuals? Well, you know, for a long time, you know, psychiatrists has for for years, uh, psychiatry has been effectively utilizing the telepsychiatry telehealth model. Okay. Um, however, some colleagues, um, uh, a colleague of mine, have noticed that since the pandemic, since folks are, since um, the majority of the the colleagues that I work with, they are doing telehealth. I'm not because uh, I'm in crisis. Right, you're in the but, uh, <laughs> inpatient. But, but some that are doing outpatient, mm-hmm. they have switched primarily during this time to telehealth. And they have noticed that a lot, their no-show rate has decreased because with mental health, you you want to, you have to consider some people may not go to their appointments because they, they have anxiety about waiting in the waiting room. They have anxiety about who am I going to run into? What, they have to take the bus to the appointment. If, is the bus going to get there on time? Can I take off work? Do I have to find a babysitter or whatever? And they're able to utilize video conferencing to from the comfort of their homes and they don't have to deal with all that stuff. So a colleague have noticed that has noticed that they have a, a lower no-show rate. Um, so that's a plus out of all of this. Mm-hmm. So we definitely um, uh, have been utilizing, you know, a lot of video conferencing, telehealth in in this 
pandemic, which has been effective at being able to uh, maintain continuity of care with in an outpatient setting. You provide healthcare management for mental health disorders or behavioral disorders. Is it a combination of medication and therapy that you recommend, or is it one over the other? Depends. Depends on the disorder. And mm-hmm. I- and I wanted to also backtrack a little bit about because I failed to mention the the kids and and how being um being in a pandemic um, has affected the kids. The kids may have more frequent outbursts or just you know being easily irritable or agitated because they're not able to be kids, socialize, go to birthday parties, doing all all that the kid stuff because they they have they're being we have to distance, physically distance, social distance them um, in order to protect um, them and the rest of the household. So they may uh, tend to act out more. Um, They may have a little bit of flare up of behavioral issues too. Um, But going back to your question um, about the the management medical versus uh, medical and uh, non-pharmacological management or both, it just depends. For instance, with folks who have ADHD, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, folks, uh, kids best um, uh, respond best to simple medication management. Very, It's very clinical, very um, biological. You just, you know, there's they respond well to stimulant medications and some non-stimulant medication uh, without the therapeutic um, or the non-pharmacological therapies. Typically with um, mood disorders like depression, people tend to respond better to a combination of um, medication and therapeutic, uh, like talk therapy uh, modalities that addresses some, quite possibly some uh, maladaptive behaviors, underlying issues and so forth, problem solving issues, problem uh, solution based uh, kind of therapies that could potentially have led uh, problems that have led them to this um, episode of depression. So it, it all depends on the person. Like we, we do person-centered, we have a person-centered approach. What works best for the person? Because therapy may work best for some folks without medication. Some people respond very well to medication alone. And uh, a lot of people respond to a combination of medication and psychotherapeutic modalities. It just depends on the diagnosis. And also, it it just depends on diagnosis and the person, because you would not um, treat schizophrenia the same way that you would depression. Gotcha. Okay. So I must admit, I haven't talked too much about um, children during this episode is because I I hope to talk about their um, mental health disorder diagnoses in another Mm -hmm. episode. But I did, since you did bring it up about some of the symptoms that kids may be exhibiting, especially with them returning to school, we can kind of talk about that a little bit about some of the symptoms that they may be um, presenting with and what are some of the common disorders. But I definitely will promise to go into that in another episode because I know that's a whole different... It's a whole nother animal. Exactly. Uh, different. Kids are not just little adults. Exactly. <laughs> so if you can kind of talk about some of the things parents can kind of be looking for as far as some signs and symptoms and like maybe the top three to four disorders that are in that population. Okay. So it's, it's similar um, to what you'd look for uh, in, in yourself, an adult. 
is there a change in your child's behavior? Mm-hmm. Um, are they more whiny? You know, you, you know your child, but if you notice there a change in something like that. Uh, they're more whiny, more clingy. That could lead to, you know, that could point towards quite possibly depression, anxiety. Are they uh, reporting like these vague symptoms? I'm stomach ache. I got a headache. My throat hurt. I mean, you want to take the throat hurting seriously because you know, that can, that's a, that could lead <laughs> point right. towards a whole lot of other stuff. But, you know, typically it's like, oh, my stomach hurt. My, my, my head hurt. I don't feel good. But they're not able to really say why they don't feel good. But then when the bus leaves or when it's when keep them at home and it's over with, you know, they bounce back. Oh, I'm great. Let's let's go somewhere fun. And also, um, if they're avoiding doing things that they normally enjoy doing, they want to avoid avoiding schoolwork. They could be struggling with the schoolwork. Mm-hmm. They could because we we to consider they were out since March. Some people had a robust um, distance learning um, program. However, that direct, I mean, you got to consider you you were being coached by non-career teachers. <laughs> Your parents. <laughs> parents. Unless they're a teacher. And, um, and, you know, that's a whole nother layer. It has some opposition and defiance, like, you know, mm-hmm. how you separate teacher from mama or daddy or aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa. So they kind of got a uh, raw deal um, towards the end of the school year because of all of this. And if if there wasn't a robust distance learning, um, there may be some deficits that they were starting out with at the, the outset of the school year this year. And they may not have as much confidence in their abilities as they may they would have if they would have, you know, finished the previous year strongly. And with that expert teaching done by our teachers, our great teachers, God bless teachers. I agree. <laughs> Pay teachers more. Yes, please do. Let's 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 vote on it to now. raise, (laughs) 200%. So, so, you know, you have to, you know, pick up on whether or not this person, your kid is like having some emotional um, mood symptoms, whether your kid is having some problems related to confidence in their schoolwork. And also quite possibly it could be something that's going on at school if they're in person with uh, another peer, another school kid that could be driving um, some of the behaviors, um, that you're noticing that's different from normal. So the, the key thing is, is there a change? Mm-hmm. And you as a, as a parent typically would recognize a change right. in your child's behavior. So that's that would send up your spidey senses like, let me explore this a little bit more. Let me try to talk to my kid. And, you know, sometimes with teenagers, it's it's difficult. They may not be willing to open up. So you really have to get creative and trying to allow your child a space to talk and be the parent, but also be able to take whatever that whatever it is that they're, they want to tell you or they, they're trying to tell you and not immediately get in your zone of being the, the parent to tell you this is what you need to do. So have them talk it out or, and be on their side a little bit, but also be constructive, give constructive criticism. And you'd also said some of those symptoms, uh, I think initially too, that, you know, the kids may be exhibiting some type of outburst as well, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
which is a change, right? Okay, right. Like, what's going on? Why are they having meltdowns over some M&Ms? You know, it's, right. it's different. Right. And then I think a lot of times, too, we don't realize it. But as adults and being a parent, you have an impact on the rest of the the household. And so your kids see that. So do you think how the parents behave have a impact on their response to how they're dealing with the pandemic and its impact on the kids? Absolutely. You, uh, the parents are the primary models for their children. They look at you for confirmation or for clues as to how to go about responding to anything. So it starts from, you know, the get go from the very beginning, mental, being mentally healthy, knowing when you need yourself as an adult, as a parent to take a time out because you need to go to the corner. (laughs) You're not right right now. It's, It's okay not to be okay, but admit it. And I, you know, I think we all as I think as parents, we need to be honest with our kids and let them know I'm I'm scared too. I'm I'm okay, but we're gonna get through this together. We're gonna just do the best we can. We're gonna protect ourselves. We're gonna, you know, focus uh, on whatever it is that centers your family. Be mindful of that because our kids are looking for some stability, and they also want to know that you're real too, not like this. You know, nothing ever happens because that's a mask, right? Wearing a mask (laughs) over our masks, (laughs) so they want to see that we are human too and that we have gone through and go through some of the things that they go through being able to be honest with your children and then as we as you said before admitting it's okay not to to not be okay and, but develop some plans like how we're going to be as okay as we can and normalizing the feelings at the time like let them know it's you know you should don't worry about that don't worry no it's okay to worry about that but let's 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 see how we're going to deal with that worry well let's do this let's just not watch the news anymore let's be intentional about having that boundary for you and your family to not focus on all of this stuff that can be very overwhelming, very, you know, having repeated trauma, having a set time, like, okay, we're not going to watch, we're only going to watch the news from this time to this time. Or if we start seeing something um, pop up on our feed or whatever, that's related to something that's, you know, causing us some stress, Turn it, change it, stop it. So we have to set boundaries with ourselves in order to protect our overall mental wellness. And if we uh, are doing it ourselves as parents, as adults, the people who look up to us, who, who are trying to model after us, will learn that coping mechanism in order to better manage their own s- symptoms. And they will have a more, you know, a little bit more protective factors that they can draw on if they are exposed to something like that again in the future or and even as adults they've because they've learned okay we need to set boundaries to protect our overall mental wellness excellent well i appreciate you taking the time to kind of touch the surface of mental health disorders and kids and how we as adults can impact um, how our children are dealing with this during this time. So parents, I definitely promise that I will talk about behavioral disorders in children on another episode. What are the resources that are available for individuals that 
may not have insurance that will cover mental health services or for those that may not have health insurance? What options are available for them? There is typically a local area or authority on mental health for pretty much all over the country. And calling that that information hotline 211 or uh, any crisis hotline, it can direct you to available resources. Also, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, NAMI, N-A-M-I dot org. They have they have a website with a wealth of information resources, and there's also um, local chapters and you know all over the nation. They that could also be a source of mental health services. Also, there's some um, agencies and also some uh, practitioners who provide sliding scale fees for folks who do not have insurance coverage. Okay. And it's it it just takes a little bit of effort to to reach out and ask about the possibility of sliding scales and so forth. And as large an area as large a city as Houston is, there's still a lot of folks who I've encountered in crisis who never knew before they went into crisis how to access mental health services. Mm -hmm. They never knew that our, you know, about our services. And we are, we're one of the largest mental health providers for the uninsured, underinsured Mm -hmm. folks. Folks in in the state of Texas, so we a lot and a lot of people don't know. It it, it just takes you know, and of course, uh, having a mental illness is not on everybody's radar or wish list or anything like that. They just don't expect it will ever happen to them. And if you don't know, you, you wouldn't really know where to seek it out. So, oftentimes, just being vocal, like I mentioned earlier stating, verbalizing that, you know, I'm not okay and it's okay to not be okay. That, you know, it could fall upon someone's ears and they they could direct you like, hey, you know, I know you're you're feeling this way, but you know, if it gets worse, this you can call this number or you can go to this place. Um just, you know, just in case. So no one know knows that you need help unless you verbalize it, unless you say, I need help. Okay. And do health disparities exist in mental health? And if so, why do you think they exist? Yes, health disparities do exist in mental health. For instance, African-American men are more likely to get diagnosed with a primary psychotic disorder like schizophrenia than they would a um, mood disorder like mm-hmm. depression or um, bipolar disorder. There, um, So definitely health disparities. There's a lot of research um, that's out there that address the health disparities. And there's task forces that are in existence that are, that work to try to to address and um, get rid of these health disparities, just like with uh, a lot of other specialties, uh, health, health in general, mm-hmm. disparities exist. Correct. Um, so it's it's definitely out there. And so by you mentioning the African-American men being more likely to be diagnosed with a psychotic disorder versus a mood disorder, is there some type of, you believe, like racial bias toward the diagnosis in this particular population? Or is there um, some other component that could be related to that disparity in the diagnosis? Well, you know, I believe there are some racial biases. Mm -hmm. 
However, it's been ingrained in our medical culture for 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 a very 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 long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, speaking of the you know, for instance, the Tuskegee project or experiment and so forth. Uh, in um, times where um, slavery was legal in and prevalent in the United States, when um, slaves would attempt to escape, the they would be given a diagnosis <laughs> related to a diagnosis that described of slaves who wanted to escape. It, it was a mental illness. Wow. <laughs> yes. I didn't know so, that. Wow. Yes. Yes. And so their psychiatry uh, and mental um, mental health care in the mm-hmm. United States, it's it's uh, just like a lot of other specialties, mm-hmm. uh, medical specialties. It's there's a lot of disparity and um, history of in, in equal health, unequal health care and so forth and providing diagnosis just specific for a particular race. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, our country has a long way to go. We're, right. we're, you know, hopefully, you know, 2020, we're working on it, beginning to hear it and work on it. And, and you mentioned not just only that causing being a, a risk for uh, health disparities in uh, population. A lot of insurance companies don't cover mental health. Yeah, just the that's just as a fact that mental health is a need, and that that insurance companies don't um, provide adequate payment or even coverage to access mental uh, health. Because I guess you know, mental health treatment is a luxury, so it's not treated like erectile dysfunction or you know, uh, right, or, right. Um, <laughs> or diabetes mm-hmm. or, or high cholesterol. You can get your erectile dysfunction medication covered and no questions asked. And but you know, with mental health, you get uh, you get a certain number of lifetime admissions to the hospital, and that's it. They're not covering anymore. <laughs> right. So yeah. So erectile dysfunction is not considered a luxury in this country, but mental health. It, is. It is. Okay. Yeah. We have to do something with our healthcare policy in this country because yes, that is just inadequate. Yes. It all begins with voting. We vote people in that address the issues that are important for the entire country. <laughs> and because they are making the laws, they are making the policies and procedures. It's election season. We have to pay attention to that component too. Not all the, you know, not just one component. We have to be whole person, person centered. We are unique people and complicated people, and we're just not homogenous people. (laughs) Exactly. Because basically, your vote is your voice. Exactly. Uh, And so, You kind of mentioned that you look at everything as a psychiatrist. How do you approach an individual with a potential diagnosis and they may be a person of faith or it may be something in their culture that they're reluctant to seek medical care because that shows a lack of faith or a sign of weakness? How do you approach those patients? Good question. So, you know, as in the mental health field, we, that's just what we're trying to do. We consider the biopsychosocial um, components of a person. And also within that social, there's a spiritual component of the person. person. So 
regardless of what your uh, faith belief is, uh, background is, knowledge is, even racial, sexual, you have to come to that person and meet that person where they are. And hopefully that's what we are trained to do. We're trained to try to leave all our stuff at the door and focus on that person and where they are and what they're going through in their experience at the time and not try to throw our personal beliefs, experiences, and so forth on to that person. We are... Our goal is to help that person be the person that they want to be and as healthy and safe as possible. So we do consider every aspect of a person. If if a person is uh, very religious, they they really are not don't don't buy into medications or or therapists from outside of their um, house of worship. You need to meet them where they are. There, there's an initiative when um, at Baylor College of Medicine, it's uh, the name of the program escapes me, but I participated in the program often, but it's it's a program that works with local um, religious leaders on the um, intersectionality of mental health and faith. And how can we come together to best help people who are struggling with mental illness and also have a strong belief in their, have a strong faith in whatever their faith is. And we, it, it, it aims to kind of help local clergy leaders identify and work with their parishioners or whoever is attending their um, house of worship, how to work with them in identifying what they can manage as um, spiritual counselors, uh, faith leaders, and their uh, particular uh, counseling that they're trained in, and when to identify when it's above their level of expertise and be able to direct them to a mental health professional that could better meet their needs. Now, there are certain counselors that are faith-based counselors, licensed professional counselors, therapists, psychotherapists, psychologists that um, are part of a faith-based practice that advertise as such that they may have a connection with and could and could um, refer folks to those particular people because, you know, some people who may be struggling with a mental illness, uh, symptoms, they may be specific. I, I want someone who, I want a biblical counselor, or I want, uh, I want a person, uh, a Christian therapist or so forth. Now with when, when you advance to a more specialized training like psychiatry, that may not be readily an option available because they don't, you know, as psychiatrists, we're trained to leave everything at the door. A person's religious um, belief or sexual orientation or whatever, what thoughts on um, race and, and uh, ethnicities or whatever, it should not be a factor in whether or not you provide care for a person mm-hmm. because we all took the Hippocratic Oath, right? Right. 
So first do no harm. Regardless, you know, someone could walk into my my office, sit in, sit on my chair and like, I don't like black people. <laughs> I'm like, OK, let's talk about that. So first do no harm. First do no harm. So you already kind of mentioned some of the things that you we can do as a pop, the general population who may not have a behavioral mental health disorder recommendations to manage during a pandemic. Like you said, we're inundated with all this news cycles of how many coronavirus deaths and all this, the election, the social unrest in the, in the, in the country. Um, you said limiting TV, how much you watch maybe to once a day, maybe twice a day. So that's one recommendation that you provided. And then for like the kids, you mentioned some type of schedule routine for them, mm-hmm. keeping it routine. So, so yes. what are some other recommendations that you could recommend for like your essential workers or your elderly population who are isolated during this time? People working from home, like what are some other general recommendations that you could uh, provide for them? I would recommend doing an emotional check-in. Like even if you like for the elderly, even if they are and not just elderly, even isolated folks, right? People that that are not around a lot of people a lot because of the pandemic. Having and this could be organized through your local place of worship or their social club or uh, their set of friends, having a calling tree to just this person is responsible for checking in on this person at least two times a week or every Monday, Wednesday, Friday or whenever. And this person in turn is responsible for calling and checking on this person. So doing an emotional check-in and just thinking about like asking like, well, well, how are you feeling? What, what if, what other, and, and being creative, like what, what things have you, you know, uh, discover that you like since you're you're at home more often because a lot of a lot of people have picked up new hobbies and have found that they are enjoying doing things that they never well maybe not never but they didn't have a lot of time for previously pre-covid correct being able to talk about the things that they miss that's not and that's not whining that's not thinking negatively that's just being real that's just verbalizing your feelings Mm -hmm. and it's okay to verbalize your feelings i miss going to restaurants i miss getting my nails done i miss getting my hair done so and also just giving, trying to give people a, a little bit of hope, even though, you know, we we don't have any solid dates or anything like that. We can always talk about what are we going to do once we can do X, Y, Z. You know, a lot of people who travel a lot, it's like they're planning like their wish list of things that they want to do when they can do it again. And also regarding setting boundaries and things like that, you you have to be intentional about choosing what conversations you decide to partake in. Like if somebody starts talking about the coronavirus and what somebody said in New York and the White House and this, that, and the other, if you don't want that in your space right now, don't continue the conversation or leave the room and just take your time out. You just really have to be intentional about protecting your boundaries. And yeah, and if, if you're feeling some emotions, some irritability, some 
some need or anger, you have to kind of look into that to see like, why am I angry? What do I need right now? Am I lonely? Is it, am I just tired? How, how can I figure out what it is that I need? Why am I feeling like this? What am I, what am I lacking or what do I need or what did I do too much to make me start feeling like this right now? Gotcha. So I definitely love that you mentioned intentional boundaries. I love that because, yeah, that can definitely be a benefit during this time. So you won't be inundated with all this negative info and energy that can impact your mental health. And also just I just was thinking about like people are being creative this time with video conferencing and and doing email and telephone calls and so Zoom birthday celebrations. Oh, that's a new one. That's a great idea. Yeah, so people are yeah. being creative during this time. So I love it. Just being able to stay socially connected in some form or fashion, I think helps with people that are in isolation and probably some of those people somewhat that you said may be extroverted, but that's like a maybe a bridge to kind of help those mm-hmm, individuals mm-hmm. and having structure in your day to day. And I think also just like you said, you mentioned earlier when we were talking that eating healthy, you know, how certain nutrition benefits and then just physical exercise can overall benefit your mental health. So lastly, I just want to just talk about um, how should individuals communicate about mental health disorders to individuals who may not have a mental health disorder? And how do you talk and approach individuals with a mental health disorder to basically combat the stigma associated addressing mental health in general? I'm so glad you mentioned that, that word stigma, because there is a still a significant stigma related to mental health and mental health disorders. Back in the day before, you know, you growing up and people, you know, especially if you uh, grew up in a very religious um, environment, if you're struggling with some kind of mental health issues, depression, anxiety, what have you, people may say, well, just pray about it. You know, yeah, it's good. Pray about it. That's great. Thought was good. Won't. It, it helps. Scientifically proven, it helps. <laughs> There's been studies. Uh, however, sometimes uh, I, I, people who may not have been exposed to the mental health field or ha- have experienced mental health issues, they may not really know how to respond to people who um, start talking about it or, or mentions that they have some, they're struggling with some mental health issues. And it may be sometimes somebody's um, just a reaction, an uh, automatic reaction to say, just pray about it or, oh, you'll be okay. Or, oh, that's nothing. Oh, that's nothing wrong with you. And I, I think at those times, I think it's not necessarily all the time that they don't believe that there's something wrong, they may not know how to respond to it. As a society, we I think a lot of times we feel like we have to respond to everything in a certain way. And we may not be able to verbalize or respond in a more individualized way when someone may approach us um, who may express, like, give the example, the person that is kind of um, isolated and they're very social 
people and used to going everywhere. It's like, I, I can't, I can't take it. I'm, I'm, I'm falling apart. I just, I don't know what to do. And they said, well, you, it's, you're okay. You know, it's, it's, you, you know, it's, it's okay, but they're not okay. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> because their truth is that they are really struggling and that's their truth mm-hmm. and that's what they're experiencing. So I would encourage people to kind of take pause and realize that before they have an automatic response. Well, have you prayed about it or just, you know, it'll be okay. It's nothing. Oh, you'll get over that. Yeah, that's just this. Oftentimes people who are struggling, they don't tell at all. They just tell, they just give, they test you. Mm -hmm. They give you a little snippet of what they're feeling to see how you will respond because of the stigma. They may not know whether or not you are a safe person to, or a safe space to tell it all to. So they may give you a little snippet and they're testing you to see how you respond to it. And that may be their first time reaching out, actually verbalizing that I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. And it's very important to kind of be a little bit more heightened around your loved ones because it's easily to kind of discount, like brush it off with somebody that you're around. I'm like, you're all right. You're going to work. You're fine. But they may be wearing that mask under their mask. They just may be barely holding on until, you know, until it falls, the rug is pulled completely out from underneath them. But definitely being more understanding that every body is not equipped or have everything that you may have inside of you, your resiliency, your the things that make you resilient in order to deal with things like COVID and other things. So everybody's made up of different stuff. And if we if we respect all the different stuff that we're made up of and understand that we're, we're all different, we, we may and we may not handle things or be able to respond the same way and respect their response and their what they're struggling with, we'd be better able to kind of respond at times when people approach us if they're struggling with something so that we can finally, uh, hopefully, get rid of the stigma of mental health or mental illness. Because mental illness does not discriminate. It will affect and reach every aspect of anybody. I mean, if you reach and look around you and your family, you will find someone who may have some um, struggles with mental health or mental wellness. And um, they may be hiding it well um, Mm -hmm. or trying to hide it, but it does not discriminate. Wow. Yeah. It just seems like from from your standpoint, we just need to take a pause when people basically we may be that that link where they may reach out to us and we may be that person that they cry for help to Mm -hmm. and we need to pause meet Mm -hmm. people where they are and um, be open to listening to where they are and seeing how we can help them and the other thing that I kind of basically taken away from it is that people aren't their diagnosis so if they have a diagnosis Mm -hmm. of schizophrenia they're not schizophrenic. They have exactly. a diagnosis of schizophrenia. They're not bipolar. They have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. So they're not their diagnosis. Seeing people as an individual is kind of what I've been taking. I'm taking away from this conversation yeah. with you. So, yeah, I, I actually always tell my patient, don't get married to a diagnosis. I focus on management of symptoms and I want you to focus on management of your symptoms too. 
Don't worry about a label of anything. Let's manage your symptoms right now. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, just, you, you, yeah, they're not their diagnosis. Uh, you know, we're, we're managing your symptoms, you know, and I, I say, well, you struggle with this. That doesn't mean you you have this. You're, you're struggling with this at this time. So, like I, you know, I say, what substances do you struggle with? I intentionally do not say, what are you addicted to? (laughs) People struggle with something. We all struggle with things. And, you know, if we humanize the whole uh, fact that any one of us could suffer or struggle with anything, that puts a person who's sitting in front of you at ease that that it's not you up here and them down there and you're telling them what's wrong with them it's like you're we all struggle with things what are you struggling with today exactly. what have you been struggling with lately exactly well wow we have gotten a lot of great information from you today dr mayor's elder it's just been phenomenal. Hopefully we can definitely combat the stigma associated with mental illness and also just be able to stay positive throughout this time during the pandemic. So thank you so much for taking the time out to share your expertise of knowledge about mental health with us today. Thank you. It's been fun. I could talk about this all day. <laughs> Great. So I'm going to hold you to another episode to come back for sure. So thanks again for joining us for this episode. If you found it helpful, please leave a five-star rating on your streaming platform of choice. This is your host, Dr. Dion. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe and feel free to tell your family and friends to check out the podcast. And remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and the thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice.